Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Shares for beginners. I'm always looking for businesses that are looking to be those future leaders of tomorrow in whatever industry that they operate in. Our objective is not to necessarily find the best one of those, rather find the best operators in those industries. And you can invest in all sorts of things. The share market is limitless in regards to the types of businesses you can invest in and those potential leaders. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello and today I'm pleased to introduce a 75% Italian weighted episode with my guest, Elio D'Amato. G'day, Elio. Oh, g'day, Phil. How are you doing? Look, it's uh, wonderful to be here. Thanks very much for having me on and uh, any opportunity to espouse the virtues of this wonderful asset class, I always love to jump at. So thank you very much for having me on today. Oh, that's okay. And I just say, say 75% Italian because I'm only half Italian. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you're an honorary Filippo for now, that's for sure. That's right. Named after my grandfather of the same name. So Elio has had a distinguished career, and I'm reading this from your website. I didn't write this, but you've had a <laughs> distinguished career over two decades in the finance sector, and your experience spans equities research, funds management, and business ownership. You're also a renowned market commentator, both domestically and internationally, and a regular contributor to the Australian Financial Review, ABC Radio and TV, as well as being the host of Spotty. So let's just go back a little bit. You um, obviously escaped the traditional ethnic investing philosophy of property and cash <laughs> under the mattress. <laughs> yes, I was the black sheep. You're right there. In fact, uh, my father, bless his soul, now that he's departed, always lamented that I didn't follow in my brother's footsteps, which of course were much more uh, designed around uh, what we're traditionally uh, known for. And notwithstanding that I was able to make a successful career out of this, I was never able quite to convince him that an investment in the share market it was uh, appropriate for him. But that's fine. One of the major parts of your investing journey, irrespective of where you're starting from or where you're aiming to get to, is actually understanding and feeling comfortable with what you're putting your hard-earned cash into. If you don't, then you best avoid it and find something else to do. It's it's one of the things this world has given us the wonderful opportunity to do. There's a thousand different ways to invest and make money. All we've got to do is find the most appropriate and the best way that we feel comfortable with. That's right. And it's uh, people have to actually find their own way. I hate the word journey, but it is a journey and learning about doing this. It's like learning a language. You can't just learn a language in five minutes. It's going to take a year to, and it's the same with investing, isn't it? Well, to a degree it is. And often the more mistakes you make, the quicker you learn. I mean, I can still remember the first two ever stocks I purchased in uh, my journey, let's call it that. Both of those stocks went broke. MIM Holdings, which was once one of the mighty stocks on our stock exchange, and Australian Magnesium, which was backed by the Queensland government, who actually forced um, the company at the time to pay a one cent dividend to all shareholders in compensation for the terrible price performance that had. It was uh, extraordinary times, but there was a great learning ground to be able to understand that you know companies aren't just inanimate three-letter codes that float in space, that ultimately behind them are real businesses that drive their performance. And ultimately, as an investor, our objective or goal is to find great businesses. And if you do that, the share price tends to look after itself in the long run. Yeah, that's right. 
In doing a bit of research for this, I had a look at your most uh, recent video, and we should date stamp this as being the 6th of May 2021, and uh, there's a saying, sell in May and go away. And you don't believe this, um, this maxim? Well, look, even the most experienced investor will tell you the market is not straightforward, nor is it predictable or explainable uh, on many occasions. In fact, when a media outlet asks me, why did the market go up today? I often reference, you know, some headline as a plausible reason, when in fact, really, the only reason that I can categorically 100% rightly say is that, well, more people bought today than wanted to sell. Now, we cling to these sayings or axioms uh, because uh, they provide a comfortable narrative. You know, they make sense in a nonsensical world. Sell in May and go away. October is a bad month for markets. You can't go broke taking a profit. The end of the quarter is fund manager manipulation. Stocks are going down, so evil shorters must be pushing it down. There's tax selling in June. All these little sayings are uh, designed to give us comfort that everything is working as it should. But in reality, investing is part science, but it's also part art and mostly patience too, (laughs) because uh, here's the reality. The price doesn't care less what we actually feel and nor does it care about these sayings. And the price just goes up and down in its normal trajectory to hopefully we hope will be a higher place, but it doesn't always happen. Um, And ultimately, we can go a little cross-eyed sometimes trying to figure out these reasons when ultimately there are a myriad of reasons why stocks go up and down. There are actually many faiths in this church called share investing. And uh, therefore, because of that, there'll be an inordinate amount of reasons why a price can go up and down on a stock. Yeah, so I'm definitely much happier now that I've uh, embraced unpredictability. (laughs) Once you embrace unpredictability and you accept for what it is, then um, you can just move past that and not feel like you, you got a prediction wrong for some reason. Phil, I've educated thousands of investors um, as part of my role, and I can tell you now the hardest group of people to educate wasn't necessarily the uh, you know new school lever or young or old or male or female or anything. It was engineers, and the reason why it was so hard to teach an engineer, Phil, is because unpredictability to them as a concept is totally foreign. Everything is precise. You can measure, you know, weight bearing load on a bridge. You know exactly how many trucks can sit on that bridge and stay stagnant for 30 minutes. But then they'll spend an inordinate amount of time planning out their strategy. Then, of course, they go and buy their first stock, which guaranteed goes down. Inevitably, it always does. It's, it's quite normal that happens. And, of course, they get very upset. They sell the stock, lock themselves in a dark room for the next nine months and try to figure out where they went wrong. But sometimes it's just the market doing what it does. And you're so right. Embracing unpredictability is actually the best way to start adding an element of certainty to your long-term returns. I love that. Embrace unpredictability to um, ensure certainty. Mm, Correct. Yes. Yeah, that might be what we'll call this episode. (laughs) In the video recently, you mentioned that you're not a fan of banks. And of course, we're going through this week what they call bumper earnings for for the banks um, in the post-COVID crisis. Why aren't you a fan of banks? Well, it's not that I don't like earning billions of dollars in six months. I can assure you of that, Philip. That's not my reason. (laughs) (laughs) But I really actually don't hate them for how they work. It's an allocation of capital question. So let's pick apart that response. I mean, first, the future of the banks are leveraged to the outcome of an economy. So if consumer and businesses are confident, um, if there's a lot of spending, if there's a lot of investing, 
all these things are humming along at the moment and banks will do the same. And that's why they've had such a stellar run because post our COVID lows, things have been quite strong. The rebound's been quite aggressive and banks have been able to leverage off that benefit. Of course, though, if the economy goes sideways and the banks will do the same, which is what they had been doing prior to this all, I mean, for the prior five years, they've done nothing but go sideways. I suppose for some people that's fine, but really for a growth investor looking to grow their capital like me, that's not ideal. And of course, if the economy takes a downturn, well, I'll let you fill in the blank what happens there with the banks. I mean, obviously, that rebound in our economy has meant that there's been a good run of late, but Seriously, revenues are flat. And I mean, that's with all this liquidity that's been pumped into the system and all that property boom as well um, that's been going on. The only thing that can improve here, let's face it, is the dividend. And we would expect that to continue. And I think that'll be enough of a catalyst to see them uh, continue to rise in price. But the more important factor is that allocation of capital question. Now, we've got to remember, when we're managing a portfolio, effectively, we're a fund manager of our own money. Uh, yes, we might not be paying ourselves exorbitant fees, but nonetheless, we are effectively taking on that same role. So unless you're Hamish Douglas, who seems to have an infinite amount of funds that seem to be going into him, even if he's underperforming, a dollar in the bank is, well, a dollar you could have placed elsewhere. So notwithstanding they've done well, you could have easily put that dollar in something else and potentially, no guarantees, of course, had done better elsewhere. My preference as an investor is to not invest in the leaders of the ASX today, but to find the future leaders of the ASX tomorrow, today. And I think that's the best way to accumulate long-term growth in the share market by identifying the future leaders rather than investing in the existing ones. Because let's face it, if you want the big guys, save yourself the stress and go and buy an ETF. I mean, uh, VAS, which is a Vanguard ETF. The most popular um, ETF in Australia. Indeed, that's right. It has exposure to the ASX 300. You've got IOZ, uh, the iShares run by Barclays. Uh, they give you the ASX 200. Uh, you get a 2% yield, 3% grossed up, including franking credits, uh, without the stress of having to you know, pick the eyes out of the banks. And, and, and with the banks, let's face it, if you bought the banks in 2016, I think it's only the Commonwealth Bank that's getting anywhere near the price it was in 2016. The that's others right. are still laggards, yeah. Yeah, correct. Now, I could spend hours if I wanted to to try to get an edge to pick the right bank to ensure that I only held CBA and not any of the other three. But with thousands of pairs of eyes looking at this with a better focal lens, to be honest, and, and more time and better access to management, well, you know, why bother trying to compete with that? I could just have exposure to the ETF and that will give me that without even thinking, without even making it too hard. And you can look at the price of those recently, and that's been exceptional, a case where inertia actually does deliver strong performance. Okay, I think though this is a good point just to explain a couple of pieces of jargon that you used so cavalierly in, in your video. You were talking about the net interest margin for Westpac and when their results came out. What is the net interest margin and why is it an important metric for people? Okay, well, quite simply, it's the difference between the money a bank makes in revenue from a dollar that it has relative to what it costs to getting that dollar. And in the case of banks, we call that the net interest margin. So, look, if uh, let's just say I get a dollar from you, Phil, and you charge me 1.5% for that dollar, and I go elsewhere and give it to someone uh, for 2%, 
then basically my net interest margin is 0.5% or 50 basis points. Now, all banks have a net interest margin. That costs the difference between what it costs them to get the money versus lending it out or giving it to someone else. And it's actually a very unique and strong measure to compare one bank against another. Not only its absolute number, but the trend as well. And net interest margins had been battered quite recently because, of course, Yes, uh, interest rates have been coming down, so they've been lending at a lower rate. But, you know, when it comes to them borrowing... They're getting squeezed, aren't they? It's a real squeeze. Correct. Very much so. Exactly. It's the great squeeze that's occurred. So notwithstanding that net interest margins this period have also been tight once again, it's just the flood of money that has supported the businesses in recent times. I think margins relate to everything we do in investing, to be honest with you. A good analogy for me to use is they're like a travelator in the sense that when you get on a travelator and you walk, you find that the return or the time to get to the point you want to get to is actually quicker relative to the amount of steps you take if you weren't on the travelator. In the same way with margins, a company can put in the same amount of effort, but if their margins are better, they'll get to a larger profit figure easier than someone who doesn't have that assistance of a nice juicy margin. And when you don't have a good margin in your business, you expose yourself to massive risks. For years, uh, companies like Simic have traded on wafer-thin margins, whereby even the smallest blowout of one project has a significant impact on bottom line because really they don't have any room to move or flexibility to move because they run that closely versus companies like many IT businesses, for example, where net interest margins have been juicy, well, they've been able to leverage and benefit from that in recent times, notwithstanding the recent volatility. So margins are a concept that investors need to understand. And so, sorry, just to uh, clarify, we've gone on from net interest margin now to... General margin, yes. Yeah, general margin. So that, that's the markup that you charge a, a customer for whatever you're selling to them. That's correct. So with a bank, the net interest margin is effectively that margin in their reality, but I'm now talking general business. And you know, when you think about a company, if I made, say, a billion dollars worth of revenue and then generated $500,000 worth of profit, well, I'd be better off actually only making $1 million worth of revenue and generating that $500,000 profit because my margin's much easier, less stress, less costs, a whole range of different things, less risks. It's just an easier solution. But when it comes to banks, well, they effectively all do this exact same business. They all lend money out. They all take deposits. They all have institutional banking and business banking and all that sort of thing. So when you look at their interest margins, that difference between what they lend it out and what they receive it at, then that can actually be a good measure in regards to their underlying profitability and also the speed of the travelator because uh, then it just becomes a a scale game and that's really when uh, things can get turbocharged. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, the other term that I really liked because it sounds so solid and so banking is tier one capital ratio. What is it and why is it important? 
Okay. In technical terms, what it is, it's the capital ratio of a bank which measures its call equity against its total risk-weighted assets. So in other words, the savings the bank can call on if there is a rainy day. So this concept was introduced from the uh, learned people in Basel or Baal, if you're French, the committee over there who are basically like the UN of banks globally, and they designed a, a way to ensure that banks maintain a minimal capital requirement so they don't take on too many risks. But of course, that all went gazump when we had the GFC because we found that through creative accounting, uh, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, we found there's a way we avoided the rules and we got a little cheeky. So they went back to the drawing board and now we've got um, Basel III. And those require, the outcome of that is this tier one capital ratio that a bank needs to meet. Now, globally, that standard is set at 10.5%. APRA, the Prudential Regulation Authority. That's one here in Australia. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. They monitor this particular rate and a bank reports on it regularly. And in this latest season, we've seen tier one capital ratios of around the 12% mark, which, you know, means that effectively they've got enough capital to call on should there be a massive liquidity event that calls them to draw on their assets. Now, we did survive COVID. I mean, that's an example of that, even though liquidity was still relatively strong, but it did what it was designed to do to ensure that our banks were, well, let's say, let's go back to one of those old sayings, Phil, as safe as a bank. Well, that euphemism still remains quite true, even though I don't like using them in this instance, the facts definitely back up the quote. So are there any sectors that you particularly like or does this change over time or are there just some that you just fall in love with? Oh, no, I never fall in love with the sector. And to be honest with you, it'll always be from a bottom-up perspective. So I'm always looking at companies um, first and foremost, be it either their metrics or the actual um, people that are running those businesses. Of course, industry tailwinds are a great support, not only in terms of share price momentum, but also in the business's objectives of wanting to achieve what it says it wants to achieve. Again, sectors, my focus generally moves towards the future sectors, notwithstanding that our biggest tend to be uh, banking and mining. Um, I do keep a keen eye on mining, but appreciate and understand that is very cyclical. But I'm always looking for businesses that are looking to be those future leaders of tomorrow in whatever industry that they operate in. Because quite frankly, there has to be an industry um, that does something. And therefore, our objective is not to necessarily find the best one of those, rather find the best operators in those industries. And you can invest in all sorts of things from medical devices through to mining through to, you know, even the most extreme range of retail businesses. You know, the share market is limitless in regards to the types of businesses you can invest in and those, uh, you know, potential leaders. But of course, you need to do so through uh, pretty strict glasses and have a means to block out all the over euphoria that can often come with the stock discussion, particularly when you listen to the CEO speak, because of course, they're glorified marketers, let's face it, that's their job. They have to sell that business. So we need a means of being able to block out that noise, as it were, and really focus on what the company is trying to achieve and evidence that they're actually moving towards that goal. And that's something new investors really need to understand, that 99% of what they're hearing is noise, and they've got to ignore that noise, and they've got to come up with their own screening techniques as well. So looking at new investors, what do you think would be the best advice that you can give them just to get started and to deal with the noise? 
Okay. The, the best advice I can give is actually know yourself first. And what do I mean by this? Well, look, let's face it. There's many different ways to make money in the market. Now, over my years, I've known very successful investors, irrespective of whether they've been growth biased, whether they've been income biased or looking for value stocks, or even momentum traders just using share price charts. They've all done very well. What makes them successful is not the exact strategy they pick. Rather, it's their ability to adhere to the strategy with discipline, to buy when their indicators say buy, and just as importantly, to sell when the markets tell them it's time to sell. Because having trained thousands of investors over my time, I can tell you now, it's not the strategy they employ that leads to underperformance over the long term. Rather, it's their failure to adhere to the strategy with discipline that slaughters them. What an investor has to understand is that if you want to play in the market, you need to understand the, you know, who you are and the things you feel comfortable with because it's what experts do. That's how they recommend stocks. You know, they'll find a stock that they feel comfortable with, be it either comfortable from a size perspective, a dividend perspective, a business perspective, the opportunity perspective, whatever the case may be. But the thing is, is when an expert tells you, Phil, to go buy a stock, do we ever sit there and wonder, well, hang on a tick, a buy for who? Because for me to go buy that stock, someone has to believe just as passionately on a computer screen somewhere else, somewhere in the world, that that stock is a sell. They have to completely disagree with me. Otherwise, we would never have a trade. So why do they want to sell? Well, those reasons why they want to sell will be because of their strategy, what they're following, what they believe in, in regards to their process. And over the long term, both investors could actually be right, even though they've just done the counters trade. And the reason why they would be right over the long term is because of the strategy that they're employing with discipline. Because again, it's that capital allocation question. For every dollar I got in the market in something, I could have that dollar in the market somewhere else, or alternatively, even out of the market, seeing in cash. And the thing that determines our timing in that regard is the exact strategy we employ. And therefore, we have to feel comfortable. See, some people feel comfortable buying stocks that are cheap. Yep, I want to buy low, sell high. But then they get nervous when the share price is still really low and no one loves it and there's bad news coming through and they're like, well, hang on a tick. You know, I thought this because it was cheap, eventually I'd go buy it higher. Now, well, no, not necessarily. Sometimes a stock is cheap because it's just bad. And therefore, they need to appreciate and understand that that can take some time for them to fix that up. There'll be others that say, I want to buy a stock, you know, but I, I prefer to buy high and sell higher. Um, you know, I don't like the downside risk. I'm risk averse. I don't like prices when they're volatile. I want to make sure I cap my losses to ensure I, I live to fight another day. And that's a common theory with a lot of retiree investors. So understanding yourself can then help you identify a style that works with your format. So, you know, some of the younger listeners here who have many years of hopefully gainful employment ahead of them, they don't necessarily need to worry so much about things like ups and downs and all that sort of thing. They should be focused on looking at those future leaders of tomorrow today to invest in those companies that will become the bellwethers of tomorrow. You know, you look 50 years ago, I'll take the US example. You know, Amazon wasn't even around. You know, Microsoft was just starting. I mean, these weren't going to be the biggest companies on the exchange and they end up being that way. Well, yes, you might not have got in at the start, but there were plenty of opportunities to get on those rides along the journey. And younger investors should be focused on that thing. You know, just because you've been big doesn't mean you'll always be big. Um, and, you know, look at Telstra, look at AMP, you know, these examples here, they'll eventually drop by the wayside. 
that's where an ETF actually works in your favour. You get survivorship bias, but I digress there for a moment. But with, but so what you do is find out your um, stage in life, find out your tolerance to risk, and therefore find a style that suits you. Once you identify that style, here's the trick. Then you got to stick to it, and you got to stick to it with discipline, irrespective of what your gut's telling you. Most of the time, your gut will be wrong, and if you what your brain tells you, sometimes that'll be wrong too. You just got to stick to that process, and that cuts the emotion out, and you'll never regret following a process as opposed to making gut feel decisions where regret just becomes your constant partner. And I think another part of knowing yourself is if you're actually interested in doing all of the work that's required to understand companies and stocks and their balance sheets and their technicals and whatever methodology that you're going to use, or are you just going to be happier just to, okay, put it all in ETFs and let the market do its thing over an extended period of time? I think that's also something that people should really understand about themselves as well. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm a self-confessed stock nerd. I know far too much about far too many businesses. And you love it. It's because you love it. Correct. You get a buzz out of it. That's right. And there are many people just as passionate about the industries they've um, turned into their careers that uh, you know they uh, know so much about. But you don't need to do that to be successful. In fact, there's an old saying, think less, make more. And that can often ring true when it comes to the share market. And the other th- challenge that uh, those direct investors uh, face, particularly with the strategy and the applying of that strategy, is when they change mid-step. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times, Phil, where I've spoken to investors and they're hanging on to these losers where they bought a stock because its price was going up and then all of a sudden it doesn't go up it goes down of course as we've identified that's what happens and it turns into a core long-term holding this is a disaster because a decision to do nothing in the share market is still a decision you hold on to a stock you are making an effective buy decision on that company every single day just without the brokerage because you're an owner of it Correct. And in the share market, it only takes you two days to settle and you'll get out of it. You don't have to be exposed to it anymore. But if you say, no, I'm going to keep holding it, then that's a decision that you still want to be in that business. And in effect, if you don't, if you've gone away from your strategy, which was, oh, it's going up, therefore the opposite is when it goes down, I get out. So when it goes up and then it goes down, and then all of a sudden you change strategies midstream, you're in no man's land. You're caught without any um, grounding and you'll end up getting blindsided by more and you'll just end up with investors' regret, particularly when you see another stock that you might have had on your watch list go up and you're still holding on to this perennial. It's a complex beast. To be honest with you, any mug can be a stock picker, Phil. The challenge is being a money manager. And I think the quicker investors understand that money management is not just discipline, but it's also a deep understanding of oneself and what one is willing to commit to and is willing to do. I mean, part of the business I run is a consulting service and the range of investors I have, one of the major parts we spend with initially is actually finding out what they actually want. Now, there's others that only want to be woken up when something happens, otherwise don't even bother with them. And then there's others that want to call every week on the latest updates and what's going on and all that sort of thing, because that's what works for them. That's what makes them feel comfortable in this um, sphere called investing. And really, if you get that, you're 80% there. Then all you need is just the extra little 20% of how you know go about investing relative to my style. And then, yeah, it could be as easy as just picking an ETF or a fund manager or alternatively, yeah, doing it yourself because it is a hell of a lot of fun. But either way, if it's in the share market, then in the long run, you should do okay, notwithstanding it can be 
volatile along the way. So tell us about what you're currently doing. What is the range of the businesses? Uh, there's a few things that you're involved with. It's Ticker TV, Spotty, and another one that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that I hadn't come across. Okay. So when I left the Lincoln Indicators after my um, many years there, the initial intention was to retire. But then I sat there and I thought, well, one of the great passions I've always had is educating investors in regards to how to go about making money in this uh, crazy, wacky investment class. So I ended up setting up a company by the name of uh, Daylight Financial Group, which holds an Australian financial services license. And from that um, has been a few little things that have been spawned out, including Spotty, which is an online streaming TV show whereby I gather my old mates, um, some market experts, let's just call them that just to keep it simple. The usual suspect. Yeah, very much so. And we answer clients' questions because, of course, well, the thing that always gets me about investing is analysts sit in their ivory towers and they bestow upon the masses their view of the world and we accept that and take that in as being gospel and then, of course, the share price does something else. Investing is a pretty lonely game for many people. I mean, no one's there to validate or discuss, whereas I wanted to create a show whereby people could ask the questions that they had. And we answer those questions in a general way, of course, because we can't take anyone's circumstances into account. But we um, talk about it in a general way and talk about the drivers of the business, things to look for, where its opportunities lie, and therefore whether it makes a strong investing case at the moment or not. And we change it up with people who look at charts, people who are value investors, people who look at small caps only, people who look at large caps. And that's why I say there's many faiths in our church called investing because depending on how someone wants to go about investing, the answer will resonate differently with them. And you know that's important to stress because I spent much of my career trying to espouse the virtues of our quality investing framework as we had at Lincoln Indicators. We had something called the nine golden rules that someone would follow that checklist and be able to make a decision and effectively tick a box as to whether a stock met that rule or not, and then make the investment decision based on that. But the reality is, is notwithstanding that that was a great process and it worked for so many people, it doesn't work for them on an emotional level. And so much of our market can be tracked back to behavioral economics and the very boring stuff that's occupied in hundreds of pages of literature that I won't go into now. But for all intensive purposes, you can make money in the market no matter how you do it, just in a slightly different way. So we've got Spotty, the TV show. I've also got Spotty Consulting, which is a premium level service whereby it's a really bespoke hand-holding process whereby it's like having a, an investment expert as a friend, as it were. And um, we keep in very close contact and we work together. And then there are other offerings that are coming on board. Part of our group is actually Chris Batchelor, who was CEO of a competitor product of mine at one stage called Scaffold which was the product, of course, that Roger Montgomery launched. Well, Chris and I have come together now and we're currently working on future projects, which I can't quite disclose here right at the moment, but we're not that far away from releasing. So you can go to spotty.com.au in order to learn more. And that's Spotty with a, it's a single T and a double E? That is correct. Yes, of course. Uh, we couldn't have uh, anything with more than two syllables and it had to be spelt incorrectly. That's the modern way of uh, creating a business name, Phil. <laughs> That's right. You're just going to make up the words, don't you? <laughs> is there any story behind Spotty? Uh, it's about shining the spotlight on shares. And Spotty is a colloquial Aussie term that, uh, uh, you know, we grab the Spotty and go out there and uh, see what's happening outside. Well, we're going to uh, put the spotlight on shares. And really, that's what we're about. If it uh, has a ticker code and it trades on the market every day and you've got a question or anything relating to it, we're exactly the people you want to come to. Elio Demoto, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Phil, for the opportunity. 
Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Sulos for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Remember, music flows when the money don't. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.